Thanks for coming on the podcast, Max. Thanks um, for having me. What are you? No, nah, pleasure, man. Um, what I usually do for guests of the podcast is ask them to just give a bit of a training history because it's like we talk about whatever, but it is kind of lent towards training, fitness, health to give a background of kind of where they started, whether as a kid, teenager, as an adult, and kind of where they are now. Um, but just before you do that, before we started recording um you were telling me how you thought that you might have had the dreaded coronavirus <laughs> yes <laughs> is, is this true like obviously you didn't test for it but you were having the shortness of breath were you having the dry cough as well no so essentially my mom had coronavirus almost certainly she wasn't tested but she had all the symptoms and she was very ill for like two or three weeks didn't go to hospital or anything but yeah, it was bad. Um, I was with her and then I traveled, made my way down here to the French Pyrenees in France. And, you know, I don't think I would have even noticed if I wasn't kind of so in tune with my body. Um, you know, I think probably the average person may not have, ex have even noticed if they had the same symptoms as me. But essentially I did have a bit of a tightness in my breath, but like really minor. And the only symptoms I experienced was, um, Basically, if I exerted myself, like if I, if I trained, if I walked too quickly, I just felt really weak and lightheaded, almost like I was like in high altitude. Um, mm. And obviously, that's not normal for me. Um, and that lasted about two weeks. And then I kind of was back to normal. So, you know, could have been normal flu, could have been anything, but, you know, it could have been coronavirus as well. Mm. And we're at that point in time where we don't know everything about it. So I'm sure there's a lot of people that either think they had it or maybe they didn't, didn't show any symptoms so they don't know they had it. Um, I'm kind of in a different direction. The one that if I just go out to the shops and come home, my throat's magically itchy for <laughs> the next three days because I'm thinking I've got it. When I've got nothing, I'm completely fine. Yeah. Um, I had someone else that their their partner got it and got it quite bad. They were, you know, an inch away from the hospital mm. and they lived together. So, there's no way they really couldn't have got it. Mm. There's, sorry, there's no way that they could have avoided getting it, but it's been like that time has come and gone and they didn't show any symptoms. So I think that's one of like the biggest mysteries at the moment or because we don't fully understand it, we don't know how each of us is going to react, but it definitely just seems to be a health and a genetic thing is the main, yeah. main uh, factors, but you can't predict the genetic, can you? No, I think it's, you know, I think obviously there's at-risk people. I think generally, you know, younger people are safer, but then equally younger people have been hit hard uh, as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it is just part luck, like you say, genetics probably that play a part in it and how your body reacts to it. Mm, yeah, you can, they say, obviously, elderly, unhealthy, like if you're obese, diabetes, mm. any kind of immune uh, disorder leaves you at higher risk. But then you'll read an article saying that some younger people have been experiencing strokes and it's a trend and uh yeah you're like far out i should probably just avoid then <laughs> yeah it's um interesting time i mean here in europe everything's on lockdown i'm in france which is on lockdown until may the 11th um and you know who knows how long this could last for really because there could be a second wave i mean i think it's basically going to be very difficult until there's a vaccine mm. 
So you're uh, quite secluded anyway, but do you still have, is your area part of a town so that there is still, like I would assume you're just in lockdown, so you're not really going out of the house. And if you do, it can only be that kilometer, I think it was, you said, from your house if you Mm. were to train. But would there be much mixing with the locals anyway or are you quite isolated obviously at home but also if you were to just go out walking and stuff yeah so we're very isolated essentially i'm in the foothills of the pyrenees which is the mountain range in between france and spain right on the border um we're Mm. about we're about 900 meters above sea level and we are about an hour and a half drive away from the nearest city up up a mountain road um i'm on Mm. a farm which is uh, a 500 hectare farm. So we're pretty isolated. There are one or two neighbors not that far away. Um, and there's a village called La Bastide, which is a population of about 80 people, which is about a 10 minute drive away. So that's the kind of closest kind of community that is uh, to us. And they're all over the age of 70. So, um, well, a lot of them are. So we're very much staying, mm. staying away from them um, because yeah. they're all at risk. But to be honest, I'm very fortunate. Um, nothing much has changed for me. My coaching business is online. Uh, so I'm still coaching my clients and busier than I ever have been through this whole period. And I'm able to mm. get out and train outdoors. I've got an outdoor gym with a squat rack and Olympic weights. Um, and I've got, uh, you know, 500 hectares to roam and explore and run and walk and stuff. So very lucky. Mm. And cats. You can hear that. Is that a cat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to work through that. I've, I've, I've um, kicked her out for now. Uh, to no, that's I might, fine. I might just I, let her in very quickly. I find it endearing to the cat. I might, I might let her in quickly because she, then she might make less noise. Hey. Sorry about that. So, yeah, the cat is in that's the right. house. <laughs> um, Thank God. <laughs> it's just started to rain, actually. So, yeah, really fortunate. You know, we grow our own vegetables here. I brewed my own beer for the first time, which is just about to be bottled. I'm making sauerkraut, baking bread, you know, really kind of going back to basics. Oh, it's brought out the best in you. <laughs> well, this is great. <laughs> yeah, I mean... What, uh, what kind of beer are you brewing? A Pyrenean pale ale. So it's um, mm. a dry hopped um, IPA, which I'm making. Um, okay. Never done it before, but um, it'll be interesting. Just about to add the dry hops probably today or tomorrow. Oh, are you, uh, so it's not at the point where you can taste it and be like, yeah, it worked or uh, didn't. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's still got a couple more days. Yeah. Or is so, this like another batch? So I've tasted it because um, what you have to do, you have to um, test the gravity to see when fermentation has stopped. And, you know, yeah. so you have to basically pour a little bit out into a little, you know, cylinder. And I've tasted it and it tastes good so far. I'm really excited. <laughs> That's awesome. What are you going to do with it? Just drink it. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you can, I guess, yeah, you can still post stuff around. It's not that strict in Europe, is it? You could send some family, friends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, um, in France, there isn't really very strict rules on brewing your own beer. There is very strict rules on wine uh, and distilling your own alcohol is illegal. But beer, it's pretty relaxed. Hmm. That's interesting. Like, I, I wish I could talk... I've, only recently been more interested in the different types of beer it's interesting how with wine you can like it becomes so complex and that's a general perception all people think gets complex when it comes to drinks 
but you can get complex with coffee, which mm. is something that I've kind of dived into a lot more. But you can also get more complex with beers, all the different types. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but I, I wouldn't like pretend to know more than just the basics. Like I'm aware of a pale ale, mm. uh, IPAs. Uh, yeah, because I drink craft beer, but I don't know much more than that. It would be interesting to... Um, brew your own just from the chemistry side to see what works and what messes something up. Yeah. Um, was there any motivation to doing it? Well, I just love beer. And um, so my girlfriend's dad, he's, he's, uh, so it's my girlfriend's family uh, home where I am right now. And he's basically mm. been brewing beer for a while and recently kind of upscaled his brewing. Um, so he's got like a whole room for it. He's got a ton of equipment. And so I've been meaning to brew my own because I, I love beer. It's the only alcohol that I drink. Um, mm. And so, yeah, that's kind of motivation for it, really. And it's great because we do actually grow some of the hops on the land and the water comes directly from a spring on the, on the mountain. And so mm. it's like the freshest water you can use. And it just so happens that because the water profile is quite specific for alcohol, for, for beer, it needs to be a specific mineral composition. Uh, so usually, if you're just brewing at home, you'd actually have to um, add certain minerals to the water to make it uh, right for beer. But actually, it just so mm. happens that it comes out the mountain perfect. So um, yeah, that's really lucky. And it just tastes so fresh, the, the beer, just because of that water. <laughs> yeah, we're just moving because in summer, that's when you want fresh beer in um, or like refre yeah, like refreshing, cold, mm. light beer. Mm. Um, to british people it's not uh, australian winter probably wouldn't be very cold but it's <laughs> starting to get colder now um and that's when you want like those more darker beers which exactly, are yeah. actually more more flavorful yeah i um i downloaded this app that kind of rates it's for people obsessed with beer and it rates uh different beers on it so if you're at a shop the shops when you're buying craft beer and there's too many options you can like narrow it down and look up the ratings for it to get an idea of if something's nice or not and i was surprised to find that all the top rated beers are basically stouts and super dark which have like a lot of those coffee and chocolate textures to it and i'm thinking like as an australian like what that's not beer like that's <laughs> that seems completely different to what like the average australian would drink so yeah it's so much more complex than uh, what I think a lot of people think it is. Did you, um, making this pale ale, choose your, like, did you get to go, oh, I like it slightly sweet and mm. quite smooth, or did you just kind of have to work with what ingredients were available? Yeah, so I kind of chose a recipe and then consulted with uh, Jeff, like, uh, my girlfriend's dad, and basically we then adapted the recipe based on what ingredients we had. But there's a really good uh, piece of software called Beersmith. And essentially, you can put in all the ingredients that you have um, in specific quantities. And it will basically tell you exactly what kind of beer you're going to get. It will have a little uh, photo or, or like image of what color it's going to be. It will have, um, you know, all the flavor notes, all that kind of stuff. And then basically, you can quite easily add ingredients, remove ingredients, change quantities. And it's going to change, kind of give you a prediction of exactly what that beer is going to turn out like. Um, so we, uh. we kind of got it to, to work what I wanted it to be. Um, and so far, just of what I've tasted, I, I'm really, really um, looking forward to it. But still, 
once it's been bottled, it's going to have to rest for about four weeks. So I won't be drinking it until June, probably. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, I can't wait to try some, man. Like I told you, I should be uh, coming out that way yeah. next year. Yeah. You're meant to be here now, aren't you? Um, in about 15 days, I think I would have been getting on the plane, but not anymore. Um, cool. So now we got the, the pleasure out the way, get down to business, <laughs> give us an idea of what your uh, training background was. I think as far back as I know, um, which I don't know what you did as a kid, but it was sprinting was one of the first things that I knew you did. Yeah. So, you know, uh, from an early age, I was always very active, very competitive. Uh, three sports were swimming, rugby, and athletics. Um, yep. I, ne- I could never really do athletics because I spent so much time doing um, uh, rugby and swimming. So I kind of just did athletics, like sprinting, as and when I could. Never properly trained for it. But yeah, I was county level, all three sports, uh, which is kind of, you know, regional, I guess. I don't know what the equivalent would be in, um, in, a, in Australia and got a sports scholarship to like a top British boarding school uh, for rugby swimming athletics you know until the age of about 15 or 16 was competing like all the top teams all three and then basically got myself kicked out uh, of school (laughs) Um, just because I think I was just doing too much Uh, got to the point where you know, boarding schools are pretty full on anyway, but the fact that I was on three top teams, it was just too much. And I started hating everything about sport and exercise. And it wasn't necessarily something that like I wanted to do. It was just all I'd ever known. uh, And I was good at it. Um, Is there a limit to how many sports someone could do? Because like you saying you're doing three and you got burnt out, I'm listening thinking like, oh yeah, of course you would. Did they not have a limit to prevent students or their athletes from doing that? Like, could you have done four or five? I mean, basically, this was a while ago now, uh, but, you know, these boarding schools, all they really care about is results and, um, you know, being top of the league tables. So they weren't really taking too much interest on, like, the the kind of individual uh, boys' welfare um so because you're doing well across three that was fine yeah but also let let max do his thing you know it's a very traditional old school english british boarding school and um you know and alongside with that was very kind of traditional views on um on recovery on training you know it's about just like reps and reps and reps and you know having no rest time and rest is for the week and all that kind of stuff so that kind of played into it as well Wow. So you got burnt out from doing that. And how do you get yourself kicked out or thrown out? Did you just, you, what, you burnt yourself into the ground and then quit? Or do you mean you started acting up and stuff? Then basically, as soon as I wasn't doing sport, I was lost because that's all I'd ever done. I actually got a back injury, um, which in hindsight, I think was partly psychological. Um, but at the time, it seemed like a real thing. Um and then I basically stopped doing all sport and started hanging out with all the older kids that were smoking loads of weed and basically went mm. from excelling at um, sport to excelling at taking drugs. <laughs> and what, what age was this? I was 15. 15, yeah. Um, and basically they drug tested me and I failed a drug test. Uh, so they kicked me out. Ah, oh. so that's zero tolerance. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what did that mean, getting kicked out of the boarding school? I then went to um, a school that you go to if you're kicked out of your boarding school, which obviously was the worst environment for me because I was surrounded by loads of other kids who'd been kicked out of boarding schools. Yeah. And this was in London. That would have been like sharing your stories and being like, awesome. Yeah, pretty, <laughs> pretty much. So, and this was in London as well. So I went from kind of this protected little bubble uh, just outside London um, in a boarding school to being like in central London with, you know, kids from London who were exposed to, you know, more things. And I actually got yeah. kicked out of there as well uh, within four weeks um, for failing a drug test, um, this time for Coke, <laughs> again at the oh. age of 15. Yeah. So this was GCSE year. I'm not sure if you know what GCSEs are, but this is um, no. like big set of exams you have when you're 16. So kicked, yeah. out, kicked out of two schools um, in my GCSE year and basically no schools would take me. So I had to be homeschooled for my GCSEs which was um, yep. interesting. Um, but I, sp I essentially spent probably from the age of 15 till I was about 23 uh, getting fucked up, partying. Um, you know, I worked in, I ended up falling into a stockbroking job. I worked in finance for four years from the age of 19 yep. till 23, which was, you know, more partying, more drug taking, which was a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. Um, I was getting paid. Was it very uh, cliche, that type of work environment to what you see on like Wolf of Wall Street and stuff as in they just want to work and then go and party afterwards? It's Is that kind of how it was? It's exactly how you imagine it. I mean, <laughs> where I was, it was quite unique because it was basically um, these guys started, um, they all worked for big broking firms, big banks, which were a bit more strict on rules. And they basically then started a smaller kind of independent brokerage, uh, which was like, you know, you can come earn your money and do what you want and not have to deal with the rules. So it kind of just bred this environment of, yeah, literally Wolf of Wall Street. Um, I, I mean, not joking, um, one, one of the guy's birthdays, there were seven dwarfs <laughs> at his 40th birthday. And I'm not even exaggerating. As in hired, not like friends. Hired. <laughs> Who were going at it as well. They got well, they got stuck in at the after party. My God. What was their job if they're hired? Like just come around and so be dwarf like. Seven dwarfs. They were dressed as the seven different dwarfs of of um Snow White. Oh really? <laughs> where <laughs> uh, so, okay, so they would were they like acting or they just had to wear the outfit and just mingle? Yeah, so basically we took them to a nightclub um, and basically, you know, uh, they were just partying with us and just having fun. They didn't really have to act. They were just like there for, you know, comical effect, which obviously is wrong. <laughs> I'm, not, yeah. I'm not condoning that. Um, but, you know, that's the kind of stuff that happened. Did they like, were they just into partying or did they go, <laughs> man, like, I hate this gig, but that's what pays the bills or? I mean... Well, some of them clearly love partying, that's for sure, because they, as I said, they were getting stuck in. Um, but yeah, a few of them were just, you know, it's just a job. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Okay. So 19 to 23 yeah, so was um, the Coke and Dwarves. And then <laughs> when, when did the fitness come back? Yeah. And then was it a realization or? Yeah, I mean. Please tell. Basically towards my end of the, my time in finance, I started, you know, getting pretty uninterested in what I was doing. Um, lots of things 
kind of made me remember who I was and you know what made me happy and slowly but surely I started removing myself from you know the the, the London night nightlife scene stopped going to the pub after work uh, started getting back into exercise and be, you know being in the outdoors and all this kind of stuff and eventually ended up quitting the finance job and I knew that I wanted to, before I quit I kind of made the decision that I wanted to do something I was actually interested in and so I kind of qualified as a personal trainer um, mm. and didn't know what where it was going to take me or what it was going to lead to but you know just kind of took the risk and yeah kind of went traveling around South America after I quit I knew that I was going to become a PT when I got back um, and yeah the rest is kind of history and then right after i i quit the job i, I then got into sprinting because i basically wanted a, okay. an excuse not to go out and party on the weekends and i wanted to train yeah. with other people and like i said earlier i'd never really given sprinting the time of day because i was so busy doing swimming and, and uh, rugby so um i spent three maybe four years uh, competing you know my everything that i did was all my training was was geared at improving my sprinting um you know, I was not professional at all, but I was racing um, some of the professionals occasionally. I was doing kind of regional UK stuff, um, you know, ranked like top 50 uh, in the UK and stuff. Um, but yeah, wow. but yeah, nothing. Um, it, was more, it was more of a hobby. I wasn't trying to, you know, I was too late because I, I started doing that when I was 23. So I really should have started doing that when I was 16, 17, taking it seriously. But if I'm honest, swimming was probably the one that I had the most talent for. Because uh, I was recording like top times in the UK for my age group when I was doing it. It's interesting that uh, you mentioned swimming as one of the things that you were good at. Because having done the marathon training just recently and not having done the equivalent in cycling. I've only rode about 80 kilometers cycling. But to me, a natural progression and a healthy progression would be to do a triathlon. Mm. Because I feel that running has its place in your training but i think long distance running over a long period of time is not the greatest for your body if you're not doing other things to counter mm. what the running does i feel like a pro runner is very specific and will carry with them good like pros and cons for what they've decided to commit to yeah but i think overall a pro triathlete is a much healthier physically individual because of the balance of the three separate things and i think what swimming and cycling add that running can't do are just so much better in terms of if you're going to choose an endurance type of sport to do i think a triathlon would be up there as one of the best things but um, I sink like a fucking stone, man, when I swim. I wouldn't say I'm a bad swimmer. Uh, being in Australia, you kind of, you just, uh, and growing up on the coast, you don't grow up not knowing how to swim. Yeah. But in terms of uh, competitive technique that you can maintain and not gas out on, uh, I don't have much confidence in doing. What would you say is the hardest things about swimming from all the years of experience that you had what's the hardest thing to get right or perhaps what's the thing a beginner gets wrong the most the technique it's as simple as that essentially if you don't have the technique you're going to um fatigue much 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 quicker uh you have you know what's funny it's sorry if i can just cut in is the 
with the technique, uh, are the legs kicking more important than just say we're talking freestyle mm. uh, or front crawl? I think they call it in the UK, is it? Freestyle. Um, oh, freestyle. Okay. Uh, the legs kicking is more important than the uh, what the upper body is doing. Like obviously it's all got to work, but I put all my attention into the arms moving and you'll sometimes if you're following me underwater with your goggles my legs are just kind of like kicking every now and then like you know mm. so the aftermath of a stroke <laughs> the um basically it really depends on what distance you're doing if you're doing a sprint then you really need to kick as fast as you can if you're doing long distance mm. you're going to fatigue very quickly kicking so that's you're, yeah you're that's right. what i thought yeah you're right to kind of just kick every now and then and focus on more in the arms oh okay interesting because i thought i was doing something wrong there in like uh, again we're talking generally obviously you want to do both but i thought yeah i was meant to be kicking more so i was thinking if i'm going to start to get into wanting to do a triathlon something good could be like holding a kickboard that just floats with my arms and just work on the kicking but I've always thought every time I try to kick more, it just fatigues the legs. And if you're going to jump to cycling or something afterwards, I feel like I'd be the quads <laughs> would just be destroyed. Yeah, but that's part of what you practice um, with triathlon is that transition is going from one to the other. I think particularly the cycling to the running is more difficult. It's called bricking, isn't it? I think I've heard that term. Yeah, just recently. Yeah um so you know i don't know for sure but yeah you'd um you'd get used to it but no certainly for the swimming uh it's technique it's you know understanding how much to use your legs um so that you're not burning out um and yeah staying relaxed not panicking uh, particularly in triathlons yeah. you know it's some people's first experience with swimming in open water and people panic uh people's breathing rate increases oh, yeah. which fatigues them even more mine would yeah, mine 100% will. You guys have it, like, it seems just like, what's in that lake? Like, in England. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like in Australia, um, <laughs> like, even local beaches, man, there's there's pensioners that are out there doing it. But if I'm, I'm going out there, I'm immediately just panicking about sharks and stuff. Yeah. I think it's, you just got to do it a few times and kind of get over that. But, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a... Even for me, it's a bit, swimming in open water, I'm always like, mm, what's beneath me? But as you say, in the UK, there's nothing that is going to kill you. You guys would have much colder water, though. Yeah. That would take your breath away. Like, that would legit make it harder if the water's cold and you're, you know, like when you do the ice baths or when you go, um, there's a place that you go, isn't there, mm. to do those, um, those cold dunks. Like, swimming in that just... Unless you're practiced for it, that will take your breath uh, breath away and affect your performance. Yeah. So I used to live right next to Hampstead Heath, which is um, famous for its Victorian uh, swimming baths or ponds. Uh, there's a mm. men men's pond, men a uh, women's pond, and a mixed pond. I used to go to the men's one because it was open all year round and it was probably the nicest. Um, mm. And yeah, so I used to go there, you know, all year round. Um, I went in when it was minus four degrees outside and it was one degree in the water. Most of it was frozen. Um, but, you know, it's something that you practice and um, uh, yeah, there's lots of benefits. Yeah. So where are you at with your training now? Because I know you incorporate a lot of different things. Is that from 
just wanting to experience a lot of different things or is there a specific training philosophy that's resulting in why you're choosing the things that you do? Yeah, so after I finished sprinting, um, what I wasn't doing enough of when I was sprinting was Olympic lifting. And I was very aware that I wasn't doing that. Um, and it was partly because Why? my coach- How come you were aware? Well, I knew that, because basically I was training with a local club and my coach was a really good coach for the track stuff, um, but not as good yeah. for the strength and conditioning stuff. And I had you know, a full-time job and you know, perhaps in hindsight, I should have joined a different club so I could have done both. But we'd go and train at places like Brunel and Lee Valley, which are like the top places for athletes to train. And I'd see Linford Christie's group, um, who were basically the top British sprinters um, doing their strength and conditioning work, their Olympic lifting. And I just remember thinking, oh, God, I, I need to be doing that. But at the time, I didn't really know who, could, who I could learn from. Um, you know, it was just, oh, I didn't know as much as then as I did now. So when I finished sprinting, um, just unfortunately at the exact same time, I really, I got in touch with my old friend, Adam Fedorcio, who's now um, a great coach who I've learned a lot from, but he was a British uh, Olympic weightlifter. So he basically taught me the Olympic lifts. I then trained with a club, Olympic lifting club for about 18 months. Um, and the, my coach Kaz was an ex uh, Iranian Olympian, Olympian. And I think still holds the world record for his weight class. Um, and yeah, so, you know, fully got into Olympic weightlifting. Uh, that's all I did. Um, and it completely transformed my body, my strength, um, like nothing else has. And mm. in the middle of all that, though, I did do an ultra marathon <laughs> up a mountain. Um, yeah, was that the one that you told me about that was about 60 kilometers? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, basically. But before you talk about that, I just wanted to know um, with the Olympic lifting. So it's one of the things that I say is so transferable to so many other things. Mm. Uh, it just has that learning curve to it at the start, which is what would put a lot of people off. One, because there's a learning curve before mm. you can start getting the benefits. But two, because you do need to be taught. It's not necessary. Not to say it's impossible, but it's not really one that you can watch YouTube tutorials no. on and just do it at home and get better. You kind of do need a coach, whether it's like ideally person to person or online, less mm. ideal, but still someone experienced with you. You get over that hurdle. Like once you have the ability to Olympic lift and have a relative idea of what you're doing. The way that benefits your, whether it be your sprinting or your rugby or your football or just other weightlifting, strongman, cheerleading, like it benefits so many other things. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. So, is there any specific moments or things you remember um, being like, well, that's, that's helped this thing so much? Like, do you remember how far into Olympic lifting you were when we had that? backflip session where i taught you the backflip because yeah. the height that you got on that was insane like there was so much power behind your jump yeah i'm not 100 percent sure when that what year on wh where what, you're at what year was that uh 2017 i was 2017 was it i don't think i'd started olympic lifting then uh really no i hadn't started no so I mean, obviously, the, the way I could, I've always been able to jump very high, and that's why I was a good sprinter. Um, 
So, yeah, you, you know, you only had power. Yeah, I've always had power. I've always had like that reactiveness. Um, so, yeah, but with the Olympic lifting, what really what I noticed about it was because I spent most of my kind of training career when I first got back into training, age 23, doing calisthenics and never really lifted any weights. Um, I then lifted some weights during sprinting, but not properly. So I was strong, um, but there were definitely weak points and my legs weren't as strong, anywhere near as strong as my upper body was, I think. Um, mm. And essentially, yeah, basically the Olympic lifting just got rid of all my weak points. I'm, you know, just so much more um, stable, I guess. And like my legs, I just now, like they f mm. I feel like they're invincible. You know, I, I run up and down mountains regularly with 20 kilos on my back and you know mm. you know nothing nothing happens um but i would say yeah the olympic lifting just really uh, overall just um bulletproofed my entire body i think um i just mm. feel so much i just feel strong everywhere like there's no weaknesses anywhere i mean of mm. course you know i'm just not the strongest person in the world but what i mean is there's not like a point relative to me that's you know one leg weaker than the other or my lower back or anything like that like my lower back in particular as well is like the mo the strongest that has ever been um because you're spending so much time you know hang snatches you know um uh three second three stage pulls all that kind of stuff just bulletproofing mm. the back um so mm. yeah i think in terms of effects on the body the unfortunate thing i haven't the uh, you know it would have been great it would be if only i combined the two if only if only i combined the olympic lifting and the sprinting at the same time who knows how much better i could have been um yeah. but you know is what it is had you been doing any weightlifting, as in just in general so squatting deadlifting before you picked up the olympic lifting some squats but that's about it to be honest um i did a lot of weighted body weight body weight stuff but I'd never really even done a deadlift. Um, never did uh, did some squatting, but it was kind of speed squats, um, yep. not with heavy weight at all. Um, but yeah, no, the Olympic liftings were the first time that I've ever really got into lifting heavy weights. And I went from like squatting 110, one rep max to like 145, I think it was, uh, in mm. about a year or something. Um, yeah. So yeah. Did you, um, did, so, okay, yeah. So I asked that to know if you if you hadn't done much before, then did you hit any mobility issues coming into Olympic lifting that either the Olympic lifting fixed or you had to kind of work on separate? Yeah, so. Because I, th I think, um, sorry, if I can just add to that, is uh, the, another reason why Olympic lifting, I think, is so great and the ultimate in terms of lifting weights is because, once you do Olympic lifting, you can move on to other things. But if all your life you've done, say, strongman or powerlifting, which I think are both amazing mm. in terms of weight lifting training, you can't just go on Olympic lift. So, yeah, an Olympic lifter needs to learn the proper technique to pick up an atlas stone mm. and, a, and they have to learn how to do a low bar squat, most likely, instead of a high bar squat if they're going over to powerlifting. But these are little things. These are small details that you can adjust and pick up. But generally, if you come in over to Olympic lifting, there's a whole barrage of barriers to get through in terms of usually mobility mm. uh, before you can start Olympic lifting. So I'm curious to someone that's physically fit, did you run into any of any uh, mobility issues? 
Um, I always spent quite a lot of time on mobility, so I wasn't as bad as like, you know, the average person would be if they just started Olympic lifting. Snatches yeah. were definitely difficult for me at first, and I hated snatches. But actually, after, yeah. after about six months, I actually much preferred the snatch uh, to a, a clean and jerk. Um, mm -hmm. Why is that? I don't know. It's something more satisfying about it. The fact that yeah. you are, you know, bringing the weight above your head immediately and, you know, the speed in which you're getting underneath that bar um, is, yeah, it just, it was... Um, I, I guess the breakthrough for me is my coach was really getting me to do the snatch balances um yeah. you know to start really pushing with that and really going for weight and that kind of transformed my my snatch and like the speed that i was getting under the bar was just really satisfying um mm. so yeah i don't know that's probably kind of the reason how, why how obsessed were you with technique because i felt like every session i did was with snatch and i, I say this in a like a positive way like i'm not saying i was depressed <laughs> training but every snatch session to me was like constant failure and reassessment and stuff like i was never happy with it there was always something to improve with it and i feel like that constant drive to make it better and that dissatisfaction with what i was doing made it my technique better but um there's there's definitely a reason why i didn't like the snatch as much as clean and jerk mm. but i also think you kind of need that mindset um in Olympic lifting uh, to get more efficient. Um, I don't think everyone does do that. And if they don't do it, I don't think it's wrong. It's just the way I went about it. Did you also have like an obsession with technique because it is something that unfolds over a second. Mm. So it does matter what you do because it can all come apart if you do one thing wrong. Or were you kind of like you learned the basics with the bar and then kind of just did whatever when you were lifting and it came together how do you look at it i think uh, for me it was very similar to sprinting because sprinting is very technical um you know three quarters of our sessions were spent on technique um mm. so for me it was quite normal really kind of watching videos of me in slow motion working on something small each time um so yeah it was um it wasn't something that i was necessarily uh obsessed with but i was just you know being coached by kaz my coach and you know he was I suppose the coach would help to add some comfort to it because even though i had a coach i didn't they weren't always there or they weren't always hands-on mm. so it was kind of up to you to get better yeah the, the coach must have been great yeah i mean he's like an absolute master i mean his experience right so there'd be like seven people lifting in the same room at the same time and he'd be like seeing exactly what was doing, what everyone was doing in a blink of an eye and saying, fix this, fix that, you know, do all this kind of stuff. So just that uh, it took yeah. kind of some of the thought process out for me. So, you know, uh, each session I'd just be, I would be working on a different part of my technique, but then also all the accessory work and being really intelligent with that accessory work, um, like the snatch balance made, you know, everything come together in the actual lifts. Yeah, yeah. Was the... For me, the snatch balance was a another frustrating one because I think I was overthinking it. I became obsessed with once you hit your full extension, mm -hmm. when you got under the bar and caught it, you had to be at full depth. Yeah. And I would, I would always hit it above and like lower down yeah. 
which if if it were you were a pro in comp, that would be unnecessary. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like why give yourself the extra work? Um, I'd lower down and then press it back up. And I was obsessed with trying to catch it at full depth. Um, so that's what the snatch balances were for me. And no matter how much I tried, like it obviously got better. But uh, yeah, I'd do the snatch balance and still it was kind of the same thing, which in hindsight, I thought, I think I was over obsessing with the wrong part of what the snatch balance is meant to add to um, helping improve your technique. Yeah, I mean, fortunately I had, you know, Kaz, um, he basically pointed out what was important, what wasn't. And he did say a few times that you don't have to catch it like deep. That's something that will come, you know, over, over Mm. over many years. And that's not the kind of thing that you should focus on like right at the beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was a guy that was uh, like really strong and did great in comps and he was power cleaning for so long. I was like, why do you not just full clean? You could get so much more, but I just don't think he was comfortable or it wasn't there, even though he was putting up heaps at like very respectable weight. Um, so that must have had something to do with the coaching as well. Like similar thing, mm. they say it'll come with time and it eventually did and he was lifting more. But uh, yeah, initially I thought that was crazy but um yeah i I I think it just goes to show again the importance of having a coach with you to give you that guidance of where to look and what to look out for absolutely i mean for me one of the big issues with the fitness industry and i think guys in particular is being afraid to ask for help or being afraid to be seen to be learning from someone else um Hmm. And I think that's uh, causes a lot of problems and means people don't progress properly and people aren't, you know, learning effectively and people aren't giving credit where it's due. Um, but, you know, mm. fundamentally, you know, and I think you're the same uh, as me in that respect. Like I'm always trying to learn from people that are better for me. And I'm not as- yeah. ashamed of that because I know that I'm never going to be, you know, the best in the world at something. There's always going to be someone better than me. And that's a good thing because it means that I can learn from them. Um, so yeah, that's definitely an important thing. Yeah. Um, I kind of take pride in that, to be honest, is that I feel very comfortable being a beginner Mm. and I think that's, it's definitely not, uh, what's the word I like it's not it's not a common thing right no. uh, but I'm not I'm not like super special for it either because I think you're like that and I think a lot of people in my that appears to me that do similar are also like that mm. uh, but I think generally in the public I think that's a very uncommon thing I think people are very uh, set on what they did early on they stick with because it's kind of they're going to lose respect if this is what they think. They're going to lose respect if they start a be- as a beginner at something at 25, at 30, mm. at 35. Um, but I'm always going to enjoy that because I just like adding more useful tools to my toolkit. And, uh, yeah, like I just think there's something really positive to that as well for your mind and just to be adding those challenges physically and to let the things that you've learned before kind of show their effectiveness as you learn this new skill. Mm. I just don't really think there's anything negative to come from it apart from the emotional side. Like if you you have an ego or you're too proud yeah. and you don't want to give in to something else. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, I'm basically constantly trying to learn new skills. My new skill at the moment is archery. Um, mm. And that's what 
keeps life interesting. That's what, you know, if you're working towards something, working towards a goal, uh, something new, challenging yourself, that's going to keep you on the straight and narrow. It's going to keep you happy and productive. Um, and it also opens you up to meet new people and, you know, uh, hear other people's opinions and, and find out, you know, the history and, um, you know, all sorts of different things about whatever you're trying to learn. Mm. How, how do you look at archery? Do you look at archery as a sport or like a, a physical thing that would fit alongside, say, your calisthenics session, your Olympic lifting, your running? Or do you look at it more of, I don't know what the, the opposing thing would be, but it's just one of those ones that I think of and see it like in the Olympics next to gymnastics and weightlifting and stuff and can't really see <laughs> the similarity, but I've not done it before. Yeah. So it's kind of coming from a place of inexperience. For me, for me, it's very much actually quite a practical thing. Cause for me, my long-term plan is to build my own house out here uh, and become as self-sufficient as possible. And part of that self-sufficiency mm. is going to be hunting meat, probably deer, mm. rabbit, boar with a boat. Um, yeah, and, and those people in the other village are looking pretty old too. <laughs> Hunt them down. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's. I, I guess I don't really see it um, as as a sport per se, although it is. Um, yeah, it's just a skill, I guess, um, and yeah. it's something that I found incredibly rewarding, incredibly satisfying, and potentially incredibly useful as well. And also mm. just to. I'm only beginning to kind of understand the history of the of the bow uh, and archery, and it's just insane the stuff that people used to be able to do uh, that we've all lost now. Um, a lot, you mm. know, traditional archery is standing still in front of a target like that was pretty much unheard of um, for most of human history. Mm. Uh, and what kind of bow are you working with? I've got um, a, a recurve takedown bow. Um, I can't remember the brand of it, but yeah, it's just like kind of an entry level. Um, it's a, you could use it to hunt. It's a 35 pound bow. Um, it's black on black, which is quite cool. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, um, it's not like a traditional bow or anything. It's like a modern bow, but I don't have any sights or anything on it like that. It's, I want to keep it minimal and um, yeah, eventually after probably about two years of practice, uh, get a hunting license because you wouldn't even consider hunting until you are so accurate um like oh yeah you know grouping shots you know at least three arrows in exactly the same spot from 20 meters away or more is what you need to get before mm. you even consider hunting so how come you wouldn't consider a gun if you're going out hunting in terms of uh the fact well again this is coming from inexperience so tell me if like the question might be coming from the wrong place anyway but to me, I would imagine that a gun would be more effective at killing the animal uh, with less experience from the person. So obviously you don't ever want to be inexperienced and cause some an animal to suffer that you're hunting. You want it to be quick. Mm. But it's it seems that a gun would make up more of that inexperience if it was to come into play to effectively kill the animal. Mm. Um, is, is that kind of, <laughs> is that wrong to say? Or because it seems like a lot of people would choose archery because of the challenge that it poses to them to learn the skill. So the satisfaction of making a kill, an efficient kill with the bow would be more satisfying because you had to learn the skill and play it out and yeah. stick to the plan and do it. But it seems that a gun would be a more efficient way 
to hunt in terms of making sure that it kills the animal yeah probably um you know you could get into hunting with a gun and hunting sooner than you know practicing the skill with a bow but for me i'm not really in any rush and for me i just don't like the idea of a gun for some reason um mm. hunting's never ever really appealed to me um it's not something that i ever considered that i would ever do but mm -hmm then someone kind of introduced me to the idea of bow hunting and for some reason it just clicked and particularly at the same time of me thinking about sustainability and the environment and the you know meat consumption because essentially if i'm going to eat meat then i think basically and, and i'm living in a place like this uh, I, I shouldn't be going down to supermarkets and buying meat i should be sourcing from you know either farmers nearby or hunting my own meat from where animals have actually you know they're wild they've lived a, a good life and you know they're not contained and you know what it might yeah. might get to that stage where you know i'm actually about to kill something and i may not be able to do it i don't know that and if that's the case then i probably shouldn't eat meat because you know if you can't mm -hmm. you, if you can't accept an animal dying or you can't do it i think you don't really have the right to eat it um and, you know bear in mind like when i say hunting like if i was to, sh to shoot a deer and i was living mostly by myself or with my girlfriend or something that would last months and months yeah um so what i wanted to transition to from that was being that kind of self-sufficient person on the land that you're on will involve like a lot of travel which will involve healthy feet which kind of ties in to the ultra marathon that you did when you were lifting which is uh white whale in it not a white whale like a well, i can't think of the word it's a unique thing in and of itself <laughs> um but you're also what's he saying you're also talking to um promote a lot about barefoot training mm. um so i'm wondering about the combination of like that ultra marathon long distances traveling like just around where you are being self-sufficient um and barefoot how does all of that marry into each other or is your barefoot training or to get to a point where your feet are fit and conditioned to be barefoot was that separate to the long distance stuff the hiking and all those things that you do so when i did the ultra marathon i was kind of just being introduced to kind of barefoot stuff um i wasn't quite there yet and actually i wish i had been there when I did the ultramarathon because I wore, I wore traditional running shoes and I had the worst blisters that I've ever seen on anyone. Like the entire of my back heel was like shredded, um, hanging mm. off. Um, but you, you hadn't done much long distance stuff anyway, had you? No, I mean, literally, as I said, I was a so sprinter. You were bound to get, yeah, you were bound to get fucked from that one regardless <laughs> if you'd never um, done anything like that before. Well, I mean, I trained, I did train three months for it specifically. Um, but before those three months, I'd never even run a 10 K. <laughs> mm. Um, and I was like the heaviest I've ever been because of the Olympic lifting I was doing. Um, muscle. Yeah. Muscle. Um, I was like yeah. 92 kilos and the average weight of the men doing the ultramarathon was like 60, 70 kilos. Um, mm. so yeah, so that was a great experience. Um, you know, something, just a challenge that I set myself. Um, I kind of enjoyed it as well, which I never thought I did. Uh, I never thought yeah. I would, um, but because I always kind of associated um, running with kind of, I don't know what I associated it with, but once I started kind of 
all my training was either in the mountains or out in the countryside in the UK. And it was just like another way to experience the outdoors, which I love. So I kind of started to enjoy yeah. it in that respect. Um, but then, yeah, quite soon after that, I, I was introduced to Vivo Barefoot and the Barefoot running and Barefoot training and, you know, Barefoot, all that kind of stuff. And completely changed my life um, for the better. I mean, now, um, you know, basically all my shoes are Vivo Barefoot. Um, in terms of how it's in improved my hiking experience, like I've never felt so in touch with the ground and with the environment because I can feel everything that's going on. Whereas before, you know, you're wearing traditional hiking boots or running shoes and you're disconnected from the ground. And there's, I feel like there's part of your brain that isn't being activated when you're disconnected, which means that I think it's more dangerous and you're getting less out of it. Whereas now mm -hmm. I'm so in touch with the ground, um, like my climbing partner, Lee, he doesn't wear be um, barefoot shoes and he's always just amazed at how I am so kind of agile and fluid over uneven ground. Um, and he's now getting into Vivo Barefoot as well. But, um, but yeah, so all my hiking boots are Vivo Barefoot. Um, I do most of my summer hikes in their sm um, just their kind of running shoes. Um, and I've, it's improved every aspect of my performance and blisters are a thing of the past. Like it's something just not, mm. non-existent, you know, at the end of a long day's hiking, you know, the traditional hiking boot, you can't wait for it to come off and it hurts and there's pain, but I actually just keep my shoes on because it's just like you're wearing slippers anyway. It doesn't make a difference. Um, it's, wow, okay. it's just because, you know, one of the most irritating things when you're trying to enjoy the outdoors and you're in a long distance hike is being conscious of having a blister or about you're about to get a blister or your foot your feet are uncomfortable that can actually ruin the experience because you're not in the moment you're just thinking there, sitting there thinking when's this going to end because my feet are killing me and mm. the complete opposite is true it's just it's improved everything uh, about my about my performance and my relationship with the outdoors so were there any growing pains as you went from normal shoes to barefoot because i've just started this journey to be able to run barefoot and not get say um what's the the, the, the tendonitis you get mm. uh, plantar fasciitis yeah. actually not tendonitis um which is common in say boxing with a lot of footwork but also with barefoot if you start if you just rush into it mm. Um, I'm doing it because it just makes sense to me that if my feet aren't uh, quote unquote fit enough to run say five kilometers, which I can do with runners easily uh, without getting injured, seems like a weakness in mm. my body, like a, a bare minimum kind of like I should be able to do that. So it logically makes sense to try and train up to have my feet be at least that fit so i could likely do barefoot 5k now but can i do barefoot 5k tomorrow and then in three days and then in a week and then in another say four days like consistently that's where i think the injuries will build up mm. and highlight the the weakness in my foot in its current state just having walked around in shoes that cushion all the time mm. but i'm being extremely cautious with it um, in terms of how I'm building up. So I'm currently just running on grass, 
Yeah. Uh, I started about 1.2 kilometers. So it took me about five minutes to do. Um, and now I'm doing about 1.7 kilometers. So I'm running around a, a 400 meter track, but it's kind of, it's a grass track. Uh, the council comes out and does the lines every, so it's not like exactly 400, but you know, mm. I was doing about three laps and now I'm doing four laps of it. And I'm just incrementally doing that because I actually don't want to feel like the feet are getting overworked. Uh, as I'm progressing, I want it to kind of happen without me really knowing. I'm just very slowly adding little bit by little bit without noticing that the foot is getting stronger. But um, what was your approach? Was there a lot of growing pains to get used to it? Did you approach it smart? Was there not much adaptation needed? Um, to be honest, when I first started wearing them, uh, I was only Olympic lifting, so running wasn't in the equation. So mm -hmm. I just started wearing them like on a day-to-day -day basis initially, just, um, uh, you know, just walking around. I did all my indoor strength stuff that wasn't Olympic lifting, wearing them and just absolutely loved it. Then after quite a long time, I started using, I was actually a bit cautious of using them for hiking for quite a long time. Um, and then I gradually started incorporating them with hiking. And it, as I said, it just completely revolutionized my experience. And then once I started getting back into kind of endurance uh, and running, I then kind of gradually started increasing the miles in them. And at the same time, I've been doing like a ton of uh, ankle conditioning, single leg exercises, um, you know, stuff alongside that to kind of, you know, get the foot ready. All my strength training other than Olympic lifting is done barefoot. Um, as I said, the only shoes I own now, other than my Olympic lifting shoes and my really technical mountaineering boots that have crampon attachments are Vivo mm. Barefoot. Um, mm. It's been quite a long transition. I didn't actually start running with them for about two years. Um, that's not okay. because I was like worried or conscious. It's just because I wasn't running. Um, yeah. I would say the only negative that I have for them are tight calves. Um, okay. I don't get pain, um, but my my calves are tight and that's something that I'm trying to work with. And I think potentially it has something to do with the way that I walk and run uphill. Um, yeah. I think I, I think actually uh, what I've been experimenting with recently is because, you know, the whole premise is that you're, you're not heel striking and you're taking shorter yeah, yeah. strides. And that works really yeah. well downhill. But if you continue to try and stay kind of on the mid part of your foot going uphill, um, then that's going to cause a lot of tightness in the calf because it's like thousands of repetitions of just contracted, you know, calf muscles. So yeah. I've actually been kind of dropping the heel a bit. Um, still kind of, you know, not heel striking. And it's kind of different because you're uphill. So, you, you know, the heel strike isn't as intense. And I feel yeah. like that's actually lengthening the calf a bit and taking the stress off the calf. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's definitely something that you want to approach slowly. Um, I really avoid running on concrete at all costs. Um, I hate it. It's, it's just not, not something that I enjoy at all. So, you know, all my Why running, just because of the impact and the stress, like when I did, um, the ultra marathon, um, all my training was outdoors on track on trails. And then I was in New York and I did a half marathon around Central Park on the concrete and time was the same. You know, I wasn't, I'd done a marathon, half marathon before, but it literally took me like five days to recover from that run because of just the, the difference in, in the ground and the impact. 
um, uh, like a, a good type of recovery is in oh, I'm, I'm sore I'll recover it's just because I pushed myself or like in, you were injured for five days like I wasn't injured but it was like my joints are sore my muscles are much sore than usual and whereas if I'd run out on a trail I probably could have recovered after a day or two um, gone back to some more running or some more strength work but like I was mm. like my jo my joints in particular, like, like on my bones, I could feel it kind of in my bones and my joints uh, for about five days. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And you know that's fine in isolation here and there, but to do that day in day out, you know, all the time over the course of years, that's I think that's definitely not going to do you any favors. Yeah, because I, I was about to say, um, would you not think that, given the how your body felt afterwards is a sign that maybe you should be working to get more conditioned for running on concrete but that was coming from a place of if you'd done like 5k i think regardless of if you've got runners if you don't like the half marathons to marathons these aren't distances that we necessarily want to do to like long term consistently anyway mm. Yeah. So to be doing barefoot, concrete, half marathon, I think it all just adds up as in it's okay to, to do, um, but as a long-term consistent thing, yeah, like that kind of stuff breaks your body down. Mm. And if you're doing it consistent, it doesn't give you much chance to come back. So, yeah, I think what you did was best as well. And it's definitely kind of the course of action I would be it's hard to promote because it was to you done without you realizing. But I feel like a lot of people that come from a calisthenics weight training background, we all look at cardio endurance training and like stick our nose up at it. Like mm. that is boring. It's like there's, there's nothing to learn. You'll get injured. Um, and that's what I thought. Mm. But I've not like necessarily seen the light because I still, if I had to pick one, I would pick strength training over running or mm. endurance training. But I opened up my mind um, thanks to martial arts and realizing uh, there's a cardio aspect to that, mm. to protecting yourself. Um, and now I can appreciate what running does add. Uh, but it took me a long time to come around to that. And in the meantime, uh, given where I'm at now, it would have been nice to have had to just have been wearing, say, minimalist shoes or being more into just uh, here. I'm on the coast. People can go into the shops and walk around with no shoes on, but it doesn't give you the best look. <laughs> so having some kind of minimalist shoe on or something would have been nice. And you just, without even meaning to, probably built some conditioning within your feet by only wearing them out, just just walking around is enough to start to build on that yeah. uh, for the foot to strengthen and look after itself before you started running. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's what I would probably recommend. But like I said, you can't really recommend that to someone because you're basically saying, I know you don't like running now, but assume you're going to like <laughs> it in two years and put these shoes on. <laughs> I think, but, um, um, yeah. <laughs> I think even if you're not going to end up running, Vivo, or, you know, barefoot style, shoes are the way forward um you know even in the short term of just you know wearing shoes that are constricting your your feet and not allowing your feet to function just walking around and and you know mm. and doing your strength training is not optimal i think um for the like the running aspect i think you know i've taken a long time to really open myself up to the benefits 
of running, but essentially, you know, I'm going through my mountain guide qualifications. I've got a long way to go. I'm now starting to climb serious mountains and I am not naturally someone that is built for endurance. So basically mm. I'm, I now work on my endurance quite specifically a lot. Essentially my mm. training now is to get me conditioned for the mountain environment. So I still do Olympic lifting, but not in the same way that I did before. I do a lot of kind of um, uh, low rep, uh, maximal strength work to keep strength up, but mass low. Um, mm -hmm. a lot of unilateral work. Um, I've recently got into rock climbing as well. So I'm doing a lot more upper body work, uh, but in a completely different mm -hmm. way to how I've done it before. And then of course the endurance stuff as well, just gradually increasing the mileage. And you know, the fact that I'm like in the mountains as well, um, for me running now is it's, it's just another way to explore the outdoors. And I actually do quite enjoy it. It's like therapy. I don't use music. Um, I actually, for my long runs, I incorporate something called the Maffetone method. Have you heard of that? No. So you definitely need to look into this. So Maffetone method is basically, it's a guy called Phil Maffetone who believes that all running should be done uh, on your aerobic threshold. Um, so rather than doing all this like uh, lactic stuff, you know, intervals, that you should be working on your base, um, you know, aerobic engine essentially. So I, the runs include running at a specific heart rate zone, which is your age. Also, it's 180 beats minus your age. So for me, it's about okay. 150 beats per minute. Um, okay. And that has actually made me enjoy running so much more because it is much slower. Um, but the, obviously the theory is as you get fitter, your heart rate stays the same, but your pace increases. Um, and it takes the stress off running a bit. Um, I recover quicker. I'm able to do things the next day, but I'm noticing big differences in my endurance, um, which is really good and I'm really enjoying. Mm. You know, because I'm a beginner to all the long distance running, that was something that kind of evolved as I followed my program was there were certain paces or speeds that I would be running this 10k like today is a 10k at tempo pace which is a relatively fast pace mm. relative to your ability and on sunday is a long run because we're trying to get the mileage in our body so we're conditioned for when the marathon comes around and over the course of doing the program it was funny because i kind of ended up back where i started in terms of maybe a quarter of the way in i got a garmin watch to mm. track my running so i could see my pace see my heart rate and stuff and i was initially interested in getting an activity tracker in the first place because an uh, mma fighter tj dillashaw who fights for ufc um he i was just listening to an interview and it was just kind of a culmination but he was the catalyst that mentioned it that he has all his training tracked scientifically mm. and they use heart rate a lot and he would wake up and go to the gym and they would look at his heart rate and that's how they determined if he was going to be like push relative hard, to yeah. a martial artist to maxing out, yeah, pushing hard or taking it easy. And I wanted a fitness tracker to just get an idea of what my heart rate was like to kind of get that idea as well. Am I going to like, you know, should I go for full planche today? Should I max out my squat or should I take it easy and do whatever? Just learn more about my body. So... I did the program, the running program, and because it was just kind of 
automated. It was a bit of a cookie cutter program, but that's okay for a beginner as long as I'm mm. getting the mileage in and listening to my body. Um, they were all based on speed and distance. So, like I said, tempo run, long run at an easy pace. But as I went through the program, I noticed that it was more important that I stuck in my heart rate zones for mm. like re- relative to me uh, as opposed to the speeds. And that was more consistent with performance than the speeds were. Definitely. Because if it's a hot or a cold day, it can affect how fast you can run or and it therefore affects your heart rate. Like I was training through the Australian summer. So, oh some God. of the sessions were brutal. And I would be doing a pace that I should be able to do. But I felt like my heart rate was 160, 165. And I was still trying to keep that as my temp, as my, um, say, like easy run pace, for example. But a 165 heart rate isn't conducive of an easy run no. for your body. No. So, this, like, I haven't really done heaps of research on it apart from what I just summarized for you then. But I think following your heart rate is such a much more accurate way to track your own potential, your abilities, and your progress. Yeah. Well, because, you know, yeah. it's a it's a measurement that is specific to what's going on inside your body. And yeah, exactly. it, it kind of boils down to the whole, and this is what Phil Maffetone says and lots of other people say, but, you know, consistency beats intensity. So, mm. you know, if you're just like really aiming for very specific times, very specific paces, you're going to have quite a short-lived running career, I think. Um, and you're, mm. you're probably going to have to miss sessions because of injury or because of overtraining. Whereas when you're listening to your body, listening to your heart rate, listening to the data, you know, you're going to get more consistent training and more intelligent training in um, over a longer period of time, which of course is going to improve your performance over a long period of time. Um, Mm. And even though like we're talking about performance and that, you can kind of keep two sets of books here. Like this is all to increase your longevity and ability to run by doing it this way but it also means that if you increase your longevity you can do runs as you and enjoy them the way you were saying like just mm. getting out in nature and experiencing it you don't need to take your watch with you or anything but just having the knees that are you know again quote unquote fit enough to be able to do a run um, and your body to hold up so you can do this over time throughout your life and kind of get that vibe, that feel that you get when you run in nature. Um, yeah, I think it's important to look at those kind of factors when you are doing like those runs for performance, training for a marathon and stuff, looking at the heart rate. Yeah, absolutely. And have you looked into heart rate variability much? Um, not really. I feel like it maybe if you expand on that, I might be familiar with some of it, but not off the top of my head. So essentially heart rate variability is something that they're starting to use a lot in sports. Um, And essentially heart rate variability is the gap in between heartbeats. And essentially um, it's a measure of how your nervous system is functioning Um, or the relationship between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system is what it's measuring. And if you've got a high heart rate variability, it basically means that you on that day, you're gonna be good at dealing with stress. So that is when you should go and train hard. But on the other hand, if you've got a low heart rate variability, then you're not going to be very good at dealing with stress. You probably need more recovery. So you should do something less intense. Um, and that's something I've so been... So the gap between the heartbeat. Yeah, so that gap changes. Um, 
so as you breathe in, your heart rate increases. As you breathe out, your heart rate decreases. And there's yeah. the, uh, a time in between each heartbeat, and that's what it's measuring, essentially. Um, okay, and how's that different to just heart rate? Because your heart rate is how many, beat, how many times your heart is beating, uh, you know, in 60 seconds. Um, yeah. But the variability is measuring, you know, the, the small gap that's in between each heartbeat, and that does change because, you know, your heartbeat isn't... So if, you, if your heartbeat is 50 beats per second over, you know, 60 seconds, it's not 50 the whole time. It'll be like 45 for a bit. It'll be like 55 for a bit. And so it's kind of measuring um, the gap in between those heartbeats, essentially. Um, and it's something that okay. I, I've been measuring for a long time now. And now I have the aura ring, uh, which actually measures it in my sleep. And essentially every single morning I'll look at my heart rate variability and it is pretty much bang on. I, I did a run yesterday, a 10K run. So my heart rate variability is a bit lower. It's not really low, so I can still go and be active and train today. Um, when I had the supposed coronavirus symptoms, uh, my heart variability was much lower uh, the entire way through. Uh, it was like 60s rather than 100s. And mm. um, actually, they're using the aura ring to, to measure peak because it also does your body temperature, it does your breathing rate, and it does your um, heart rate variability and heart rate, heartbeat. So, yeah, they're using it for. Um, coronavirus research i've actually signed up to a, a study through the app on aura ring so it's definitely something that you want to consider oh nice um yeah i was looking at the aura ring to potentially get myself um but i ended up thinking uh like it's not an activity tracker as well is it it's not a good activity tracker no yeah, so I, I leaned more towards the activity tracker, but I'll need to have a look and see if the Garmin watch I got does do the heart rate variability. I just can't wrap my head around the f that um, the difference in like heart the beats per minute and heart rate variability is. And I, I get the difference like specifically, mm. but if your heart rate increases, then your the gap between your heart the beats the heart rate variability will shorten mm -hmm. so isn't that the, the, isn't it the same thing so you could essentially also be like if you have a lower heartbeat that day relative to what your average is then yeah. it means the same thing as if you have a longer heart rate variability yeah definitely so if you've got a low heart rate that's another thing that the aura ring measures it will say you know um your your resting heart rate is lower today so that means you should go and train you've recovered well so definitely it's similar i mean i'm yeah. probably not explaining it very well um but yeah you should um you should look it up and it will explain exactly what the difference is um so look quickly if i google it <laughs> Uh, heart rate variability is the psychological phenomenon of the variation in the time interval between consecutive heartbeats in milliseconds. A normal healthy heart yep. does not tick evenly like a metronome, but instead, when looking at the milliseconds between heartbeats, there is a constant variation. Um, okay. So, yeah, um, definitely um, get stuck into, into that. Have a look at it. Aura Ring, I've got a good, quite a good yeah. article on it. Yeah, I, I, I did like the look of that. I just got my fingers crossed the Garmin does it now. <laughs> um, All right, man. Um, we'll wrap it there. Um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, what you're doing, 
social media platforms uh where can they find you so probably instagram is the best place uh at max.lowry l-o-w-e-r-y uh facebook as well at max lowry official i also have a youtube channel but not as active as i should be on youtube um my website twomealday.com uh has a lot of information but yeah definitely instagram is probably the the number one place to see what i'm up to and to find out more if anyone's you know interested by anything that i've said you know feel free to send me a, a dm um slide into the dms and uh i'll see if i can help awesome thanks so much for coming on max talk soon thanks a lot